this was the whole scene, the whole idea, kind of a glorified pep rally. As I've studied and thought about this, I think one of the main reasons why Queen Vashti decided to be absent was because she knew what typically went on at these parties and she had no desire to participate. It stands to reason that likely she didn't enjoy the company of her husband or of his drunken minions. And so she was notably absent from the party. Let's read in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, let me stop here for just a moment. Here we find the king. It's the last day of his celebration. He's had 180 days and now a seven-day kind, of kind of a capper of a party. And as he comes to the end of this celebration, Scripture is clear that his heart was merry with wine. It doesn't mean that he just thought that, man, this is the best I've had yet. I mean, over a 180-day period of time, I've tasted some good drink, but this is the best. It means literally that he was drunk. Now, here's what I want you to understand, and just as a, as a side note, that Scripture is very clear that it's not the consumption of alcohol that is sin, but according to Ephesians 5.18, it is drunkenness that is sin. I want to be very, very clear about that, that I believe clearly that that's what Scripture teaches. But I want you to also understand that as Christ followers, we're to be controlled by the Spirit of God and nothing else. It's amazing to me that there are many of us, depending on the environment that you've grown up in, and, and, and we're good about shouting about the evils of alcohol while being controlled with many other things in our lives. I want to challenge you not to allow yourself to be hypocritical in that area of your life where you are pointing out something in somebody else and yet you yourself are controlled by things other than the Holy Spirit. Here's my admonition to you. If you choose to consume alcoholic beverages, don't let it take control of you. In my 47 years of life, I've noticed that when alcohol is present with people who are, who are not in control of themselves, bad things happen. If this text is a definition of anything, it's a definition of that. And for me... Me personally, I'm too cheap to buy beer and to buy wine. I just am, all right? Some of you, if you've been to a restaurant with me, you know I'm too cheap to buy a soda in a restaurant. So you can imagine, I'm probably not going to order a glass of wine or a beer. I also, by the way, and some of you will take this admonition, I hope, as it's intended, but I also know that I am a person that's given to extremes, I am a person that I am the very definition of all in. I'm not ever just a little bit in in anything. I'm all in. And if that's true of you, I would caution you with your use of alcohol. I'm the kind of guy that I can buy a pack of gum and by the time I get home, I could have chewed the whole pack. Anybody else there with me? I discovered these little things, in fact, uh, several months ago, but then I was revived by them last Sunday. Diana and I stopped in Harris Teeter just to grab something, and coming through the checkout lane, I noticed these little things. They come in a little container like this. They're little sour things like watermelon and tangerine, and, and being on my low-carb lifestyle thing, I looked at it, and I went, hey, no carbs. This is awesome. I'm all about this. And I tasted one, and a couple hours later, the whole container was gone. And guess what? The next day I went and bought another one because they were on sale. All right? I know this to be true of myself, that I am a person that's given to extremes. And so the best thing for me is to stay away. And maybe that might be true, by the way, for some of you as well. The writer, I believe, tells us that he's drunk for a reason. I think the reason is to clearly communicate that he is not thinking clearly because he's not in control. The wine is by this particular time. 
You're going to find that as you go through the book of Esther, this king has the ability to be able to control everything in his life, other than his wife, except for himself. Continue reading in verse 10. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass. All right? Mark Driscoll says as he preaches through this particular thing, he gives some admonition to those of you that are teachers, that whenever you're reading words like this, names like this, you read them very quickly and you read them very confidently. And everybody will think you know how to pronounce them, all right? Because you don't either. I've said that to you before. These men were the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, of King Xerxes. Verse 11, he asked them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. Now, there's really no way to say this delicately, and so I'm just going to say it this way. These were men who had been castrated, all right? The purpose was so that they could serve in the king's palace without fear that they would have any sexual relationship with anybody in his harem there in the palace, Think about that for just a moment. Now I know for those of you that are out there and you are of the male persuasion, you think, man, that's got to be the absolute worst thing that could ever happen in a man's life. You have to understand that culturally speaking, if you do a little bit of study about the eunuchs, that to serve in this particular role in the king's court was actually a very high position. Wouldn't be one of those positions that I would have wanted to attain. Wouldn't have been one of those positions which many of you would have said, kind of like a shepherd, you don't grow up saying you want to be a eunuch when you grow up. But that's what these men did. And the king viewed them as men that were incredibly loyal to him. He had no fear of them trying to steal any of his women in his palace. And so therefore, he very often confided in these men and they became very close to the king and they literally had the king's ear. I do, however, believe that not only to the Persian Empire here, but to other cultures who have had this practice of castration, that it does speak further to the total depravity of this and other kings throughout history. So the king tells the men who served him to go and get the queen. Now, scholars have wrestled with the meaning of the king's command. Some have suggested that he simply wanted Vashti to come into the party unveiled, which you have to understand would have been a scandalous event in the Persian court. Others have suggested that he not only wanted her to come unveiled, but in fact, all he wanted her to wear was her crown. More like, you probably picture it like a turban with all kinds of precious jewels in that turban. He didn't want her to wear anything else other than that. Either way, it's hard to believe that the king's motives were pure. He probably didn't even recognize or realize what his motives actually even were. He was asking her basically, bottom line, to come in in front of his drunken friends to parade in front of them. And notice Queen Vashti's response to his request, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Basically, she said this, no way, Jose. That's uh, in a different language. We can kind of read that in the original. She said, no way, I'm not coming. What was she thinking? You don't say no to the king. Now, there are some who believe that she should have done as she was requested to do. It's amazing to me that there are some Christians that actually believe that, that she should have simply followed his desires because he was her husband. How many of you believe that? 
Great, we've got unanimity here this morning. Others believe then, as most of you, if not all of you, believe that she was to be applauded for standing up to his perverted, nasty request. There's no reason at all to believe that she had any religious conviction, so that it had nothing to do necessarily with her own personal morality or how Jehovah God would view her. I think it's possible that this was just the latest in the abuse that she experienced as being the wife of a narcissistic king. We do know that this is a perfect example of what happens when people who are put into positions of ultimate authority have zero accountability. I really want you to mark that down, and if you don't mark it physically in your Bible or in your notes, I want you to remember that this morning. And it is true, by the way, not just in a household. It's not true only in the workplace. It is true in every institution in society. When there are people that have ultimate authority with zero accountability, bad stuff is going to happen. Here's what I want you to remember. Only a king with perfect character is worthy of absolute power. And there is only one king of all kings who meets the criteria for this, and that is the king we serve, King Jesus. He condemns, in fact, the kind of leadership that Xerxes was trying to wield over the people in his kingdom. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn real quickly over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. I'm going to read it in the message this morning. Paul writes, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Doesn't sound like Xerxes, does it? Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Jesus further demonstrated his humility. If you were to turn over to the book of John, chapter 13, you'll remember the story of when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And you'll remember what Peter said, Oh no, no, don't touch my feet. Now some have speculated that Peter just knew actually what was down there and he knew the kind of feet that he had. Actually, he thought, you are the the living son of God. You shouldn't serve me. And yet Jesus said, no, that's exactly what I've came to do. I've come to be the servant of all. Now some of you, it's very easy to say, hey, preach that. Man, I love that. I, I think leaders should behave that way. This would be better if political leaders, if CEOs of corporations, if pastors and churches, if people would just live that way, this world would be a a better place if if people would live with that kind of humility. Before you're so quick to march in that parade, let me remind you that each of us have a circle of influence where we are in authority. Parents, let me ask you this. Do you find it easy or difficult to humble yourself and serve your children? Isn't it so easy for us to get into the mentality that our kids are there to serve us because we're the adult, because I'm the dad, because I'm the mom, I should be served. See, we all have places where we're in authority. Parents, teachers, managers, etc. 
Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We went through a series in Northwest a couple of years ago in 1 Peter. Some of you will be familiar with this text. Look at chapter 2 verse 13 where Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Notice we submit, the Greek word there has the idea of we come under the authority that is placed over us. And why do we do it? We do it for the sake of our testimony, for the Lord's sake. Verse 14, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, in other words, for the Lord's sake, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Look at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, for the Lord's sake, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. In other words, if you don't honor your wife, if you don't love your wife in that way, don't even bother to pray because your prayers aren't going to be answered. You say, oh, I think that's a misunderstanding of the text. Well, good. Well, educate me then because it's very, very easy to see that if you have that kind of relationship with your husband or with your wife this morning, don't even bother praying. God does not hear our prayers. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, a text which many of us are familiar with. I want to read it to you this morning out of the message again, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, verse 21, out of respect for Christ, be courteous and reverent to one another. Verse 22, wives understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Boy, if Xerxes could have only read this text, huh? Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that's how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. Now, hear me this morning. I believe that the Bible is very, very clear that husbands ought to lead their homes. I know that is a very incredibly politically incorrect statement to make in our culture today. And I know, just speaking as somebody that's been in ministry a fairly long time now, I know that there are probably even some of you this morning that struggle with that. By the way, not just women, but men as well that struggle with that whole concept. I want to tell you, this isn't Brian talking. I simply read to you from the very word of God. But I do not believe, however, that the Bible teaches that a husband is to demand submission from his wife. In fact, personally, I believe that when husbands are worthy to be followed, wives love to be led. I think that when we're unworthy, that's when a wife chafes at the very thought of following that kind of leadership. Simply put, husbands, this is a good way to say it. If you want to enjoy leading your home in a God-honoring way as a servant leader, you have to be a man that is worthy to be followed. 
You cannot simply demand submission. It will never work. And submission does not mean inferiority. I've become convinced in my life, it didn't take actually too many years to realize that without women, without women in our culture, we are a messed up place. And I don't mean that just from a reproductive standpoint. I obviously get that. I'm talking about women are at the very fiber of our culture. I believe that with all my heart. We lift up women at Northwest Community Church. I I believe women ought ought to lead. There are opportunities for leadership, but I believe unapologetically that God expects men to lead their homes. I want to tell you, after 25 years of pastoral ministry, I have met men at both extremes of this issue. I've met men who are little King Xerxes. They pass edicts and they post them all over the house. You know, putting them on mirrors, reminding, I am in control. This is my empire. This is my domain. I say to those men, how's that working for you? Maybe the reason that you're not being followed is because you're not modeling biblical servant leadership. You may call yourself a leader, but if you look over your shoulder and there's nobody following, guess what? You're not one. Okay? Just like the old African-American pastor said, you can call yourself a biscuit, but unless you're in the oven baking, you ain't one. All right? And that's true for you. You can say, I'm leading my home. If you look in back of you and nobody's following you, it really doesn't matter what you say that's not taking place. King Xerxes type leadership in the home does not work. If this text tells us anything, it tells us that. I say to you men that are like that this morning, stop making rules and start leading your family as a servant following the example of Jesus Christ. Those who gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it, you will live in the constant fear of losing it. I've observed it as a pastor. But when you lead as Jesus led when he was here on this planet, when you lead as Jesus leads his bride, the church, well, that's when you'll experience true satisfaction. I've also, however, known men on the opposite side of the spectrum, and they are men who simply will not lead. And some of these men, by the way, blame their wives. In some cases, that's true. Some of you women this morning, and I, I really, my, my mind is not thinking of any of you in particular. So, you know, sometimes people come up to me afterwards and they go, you were preaching to me this morning, weren't you? And sometimes they go, actually, yeah, I kind of was thinking about you. Okay, I'm not thinking of any of you this morning, all right? But as they say, if the shoe fits, put it on, try it out, walk in a little bit, run a little bit. If it fits, maybe that's you, all right? Some women refuse to let their husband be the servant leader, and yet they complain that he's not leading. Newsflash, ladies, you need to let him lead. In fact, I would go a step further. You should expect him to lead. But for many of you men, that's not the problem. The problem is that you left your man card someplace. And you've been simply content to go through life nothing more than just a passive little boy only getting excited when your team scores a touchdown or you get a new car. And I'm telling you, that is not biblical manhood. That is not what God calls us to do. I say to you, if that's you this morning, grow up and start leading your wife and your kids. They want you to lead. They need you to lead. And wherever it is that you left your man card, I'm convinced you go back there. It'll be laying right there. Pick it up, all right? 
I've said it in the past this way, take the skirt off, put the pants back on, and learn to be a man. Now, I know some of you, every time I say things like that, I get an email, I get a conversation that says, you were kind of hard on the men just a little bit. Well, hey, we're men, right? And I say to some of you, you do a good job at dishing it out to everybody else. Sometimes somebody needs to speak truth into your life as well. I say what I say because I love you. I really do. I say it as a shepherd, somebody that will give accountability that is accountable for your souls this morning. I don't want you to be coming to a church where you're not challenged to stand up and be a man and to lead your family. Let me say, by the way, to those of you who are single here this morning, ladies, if, if he doesn't demonstrate servant leadership now, he's not a spiritual leader and you need to get rid of him now. Seriously. Because he isn't going to be any better than he is right now. Amen? Amen? Okay, some of you know it by experience, and it's sad. I don't, I don't laugh about that, but some of you know. It's not going to get any better. Okay? It's the rare exception where the guy gets better. Usually it goes just the opposite. Guys, you know it's true. Once you get the ring on the finger, once the prize has been won, that's what happens. If he's like that, you need to leave. You need to get out of that relationship if you're dating him now. And I can stop right here and you can send a text message if he's not here. All right? You can just send a text message. The, the Spirit of God just convicted me. I'm leaving. We're done. Signed. See you in heaven someday, I think. All right? Whatever you need to do. Some of you need to do that. Now, before ladies, you single ladies, before you start going, yeah, tell them, man, preach. Those men would just stand up, start being men like this, and I'd have somebody to date. Before you get going too far, let me say to you men that if she doesn't allow you to lead, then you're simply an addition to her accessories. Right? You're a pair of earrings. You're a bracelet. You're a new pair of shoes. I want you to say goodbye right now. Don't waste your life pursuing a relationship with a person who's not committed to biblical relational principles that are found in the Bible. Don't waste your time. I will tell you this, single ladies, there are guys out there who buy in to what it means to be a servant leader, to what it means to be a man. Go find one. Let me tell you this, guys. There are women out there who buy into what it means to be a daughter of the king of kings. Go find one, okay? Don't settle for one who can just paint herself up and look real nice and, you know, don't settle for that. Having said all that, she said no. (laughs) Ever wonder about that as you go through Scripture and you go, man, I don't think that was all in my Bible. I don't know where he... He's now at 12B. 12A lasted a long time, all right? That happens sometimes. 12B. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Why was he so angry? Proverbs 14, 17. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. The simple answer is he was mad because he didn't get what he wanted. (laughs) Some of you studied the book of James and you know that that's the response that we get when we don't get what we want. James said it this way, in fact, in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and you fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and you're willing to even kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. We get mad when we don't get what we want or when things don't go our way. Is that true of you? It's true of me. That's why I get mad. I'm totally cool if you give me what I want. 
I'm a really nice guy. If you do everything my way, it's true in your home, isn't it? You ever notice, parents of teenagers, whenever you're doing what your kids want you to do, man, life is good, right? When you tell them, yeah, you can go there, and yes, I'll buy you this, and yes, you know, you can have this friend over, and you can go over there. Life is good, right? What happens when you tell them no? That's a different story, right? Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men. It's way too kind in the translation there, the wise men. King said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to speak before all who knew law and justice. They were close to him. Here we go. Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukan. I just pronounced them all correctly as they were meant to be pronounced in the original Hebrew. The seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. He said to these men, verse 15, according to the law, What is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus that he delivered by the eunuchs? Now, these were the the king's close advisors. In the Hebrew, in fact, this actually reads, the seven who see the face of the king. They were, for our terminology and our particular political structure here in the United States, it would be, this is the president's cabinet, These were the guys that the king could rely upon to give him sound advice. The king asked, what should we do with the queen, given the fact that she didn't obey my command to come before me? Is this funny to you? Isn't it funny that the king really has an issue with his wife, and rather than going and sitting down with his wife, he gets together the cabinet of the largest empire, the Persian empire. And he goes, guys, what should I do? My wife, I asked her to come and she didn't come. Imagine that. Imagine those of you that are in management in the corporate world. If you gathered everybody tomorrow morning and said, hey, I had a rough weekend. I asked my wife to cook this particular meal and she didn't do it. What should I do? All right? That's just ridiculous, right? Let me stop here for a moment and ask you, do you have people in your life that can tell you the truth or do you surround yourself only with people that tell you what you want to hear? I'll stop for just a moment and let you think about that. You see, this is a problem not just for the heads of state. It's a problem for ordinary people like you and I. I know for me, I need people in my life who will speak truth to me. When I'm at the very edge of that cliff, (laughs) you been there? And you're about ready to do something really stupid because you don't have a parachute on. You're about ready to jump off of that cliff. I need people in my life who will tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And let me tell you this, you need people like that too. I want to encourage you to build relationships with that kind of people who can have that kind of ministry in your life. Those people, by the way, in a man or a woman's life, or by the way, in a middle school student's life or a high school student's life, those people are priceless. Do whatever you can to cherish those relationships. And I will say, just speaking to our our middle school, high school students today, your parents very often will serve in that role for you. You would do wise to listen to them. People that love you and that care about you, and they love you enough, in fact, to say no to you, to tell you the truth, to tell you not necessarily what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. These people in my life, I'm telling you, and some of them are here this morning, they have kept me from making some really dumb decisions in my life. Here's the tragic thing about King Xerxes. He didn't have any of those people in his life. 
All he had in his life were people that blow smoke and hot air. In fact, the book of Proverbs says that a companion of fools soon comes to ruin. You surround yourself with fools, you become a fool. Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, however, that the multi- in the multitude of counselors, there's what? There's safety. There's safety. You surround yourself with wise people, even if you're a fool. You start taking on some characteristics of wisdom. Surround yourself with wise people. Verse 16, in the presence of the king and the princess, Mimukin said, he's the spokesman, Queen Vashti is wrong, not only the king, but also the princess and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Now, if I'm the king, I'm going, what the? I mean, I don't think she refused. What, what are you talking about? He's going to explain. The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. And this day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And there will be plenty of contempt and anger. It's funny if you read even secular historians tell us that Mamukin probably had a wife who was very, very much an independent thinker. In fact, some have speculated that, that it wasn't just him, but the other six men as well that went, oh, this is bad news. This is really bad news because up until this point, we've been able to rule with an iron fist just like Xerxes has been here. And now, now, if the word gets out that she said no to you, we're all in trouble. It's not going to be good. We're going to go home tonight and all of a sudden we're going to get, no, no, no. We've got to do something about this. I think it's incredible that Queen Vashti obviously had incredible influence on the women in the empire. Because these men were so afraid that if they heard of her disobedience, that they would respond similarly to their husbands. Would have been kind of funny if that would have happened that way, actually, I think. And so Mimukin says, I have a solution, verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashni may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. In other words, who is more obedient. Verse 20. When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all the kingdom, graze it as is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. I think that's funny too, by the way. I mean, it's one thing if you're a great husband. What if you're just labeled in Scripture as a small husband, all right? That's one of those you checked your man card at the door, all right? That's what he's talking about right here. Didn't see any other commentary that said that, but that's me. That's free. That comes with no extra charge. It's just part of what you get today. Now, here's the question that I have for you. Where are the adults? This is the most powerful man on the planet at this time. Surrounded by seven wise, I use the term loosely, wise men. Are you serious? Does this whole thing sound funny to anybody but me? The king says, come. I want you to come before all my drunken friends and parade yourself in front of them. And she says, no. And so he says to her, okay, you can never come in front of me again then. Does that sound funny to you? Sounds funny to me. She has to be saying, great. That's all I wanted in the first place. If I never see your face again, that's fine with me. I never have liked you. By the way, you ought to do a little study on how the king actually got many of his wives. Maybe that was the case. 
This would be like when you were a kid not eating your vegetables and your mom saying to you, okay, you didn't eat those vegetables. You are going to eat a big bowl of ice cream. And you'd go, cool. I'm not eating them tomorrow either. This is awesome. I mean, you're giving me exactly what I want. I want the ice cream. He's giving her what she wanted. She doesn't want to see him. Oddly, though, I don't know if it's that the king is still drunk. This thing totally makes sense to him. It totally makes sense to him. Read on, verse 21. This word pleased the king. He liked the advice that he was given. Must have been drunk. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. Only a man who's drunk would accept this advice. In other words, it's this. Let's make sure that the king is further humiliated. Let's issue a royal edict that is going to be sent out to the entire empire talking about the king's problems at his house. In fact, by passing the edict, he ironically assures that everyone will know what was happening inside of his home, that somebody actually stood up to him, and that he has no control over his own home. Great advice, Mamukin. We can see where you get the title wise man, can't we? Verse 22. So he acts on it. He sent the letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to his script, and to every people according to their language, In other words, they translated into whatever language, because remember, it's a big empire. And they sent it out that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. You see, the consequence of the king's decision will have a huge impact on him and on his empire. We're going to see that in the days to come. But all of this silliness could have been avoided. You recognize that? And so it is with our lives. We make decisions all the time that are mistakes. I hope you do. I, I do. On a weekly basis. I try to start out each week going, man, this week I'm not going to screw things up. I'm not going to do stupid things. I'm not going to say stupid things. And that lasts. Sometimes I make it through like Monday lunch. But, but most of the time, I mess up. We make poor decisions. We get angry when we shouldn't. We say hurtful things to others. It's not a question of if we will sin. It's a question of what we will do when we sin. And so as we close this morning, I want to give you three lessons from the life of an arrogant king. I gave you three lessons last week from a foolish king. Same king, only he's not just foolish now. He's arrogant. Number one is when you are wrong, make it right. When you're wrong, make it right. Imagine if the king had simply gone to the queen and said, please forgive me. I was with the guys. I had too much to drink. I gave in to the pressure, the people around me. I I was wrong. Problem solved, right? She probably would have fallen off of her royal throne at that particular moment, but problem would have been solved. No need for a new queen No need for edicts, no need for notes on mirrors in the bathroom, no need for a cabinet meeting. Problem solved. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Make it right. I want to challenge you that when you are wrong, make it right. It doesn't matter if you're the parent. Boy, is that not the most humbling experience, parents, when you have to make something right with your kids because you messed up. If you're the parent and you mess up with your kids, make it right. If you're the boss at work and you mess up with those that are underneath you, make it right. If you're an elder, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader in the church and you mess up, guess what? Make it right. 
It's taken me a long time to learn that lesson because I bought into the idea in some cases because I had men that were mentors to me who thought that any time you had to apologize, any time you had to admit that you were wrong, that somehow you were admitting weakness. Let me tell you, the greatest strength I believe in a Christ follower's life is when you have the ability to be able to admit that you are wrong. I still haven't gotten totally there, but while it's difficult to admit that sometimes what I've done is wrong and that I've sinned, I can tell you this, that there is an incredible deep comfort that comes when I don't argue, when I don't fight, when I just simply say, I'm wrong. Please forgive me, what can I do to make it right? Number two, people who are wrong build cases. Some of you are looking at me going, yeah, you do. Okay, I, 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 I can do it. I'm telling you, if you've never been and heard one of my cases that I've presented in a courtroom, you ought to come hear it because they're good. I can convince my wife that she is wrong when it is so obvious that she is right. I build incredible cases. Diana, on the other hand, not so good at that. She's just not. She can be totally right and go, please forgive me, I was wrong. And I'll go, yes, exactly, you were. And here's the reasons why. And I build the case out. I don't say that, by the way, with pride. And some of you who look at me know that that's true of you as well. You're good at it. Normally, the people who are defending themselves, who are defending their actions, these are usually the people that are wrong. Have you found that to be true? I've come to understand after 47 years on the planet... That usually the guy that's talking the most, he's the one that's wrong. That's because people who are wrong build cases. Proverbs 17.26 says this, Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. Boy, if I'd have learned that as a kid, it would have been awesome. We find people who agree with us and then we convince them as we build our case that we're right. What a dangerous, dangerous place. To be in. Number three, people who are unrepentant ultimately live lonely lives. People who are unrepentant ultimately live lonely lives. Here's the sad reality. Rather than Xerxes simply asking Queen Vashti to forgive his immoral, hideous request, he gets angry and then he makes a stupid law that can't be broken. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Can't be broken. He can't even break it. We saw that to be true in Daniel. Remember when, when the king was tricked into making a law that nobody could pray to anybody but him and he couldn't break it? And as a result, Daniel was thrown into that den of lions and he felt so badly. He follows such silly, stupid advice that he passes a law that even he can't break. He can't see her again. Matt's going to pick it up in chapter 2 next week, but if you look at the first verse in chapter 2, Xerxes has gotten back from Greece and he's gotten his royal bottom spanked by their armies. That's in the commentary just below in your study Bible there. He comes back to the palace. He's not angry anymore, the text says. But he recognizes that there's no queen. And then he goes, yeah, pass that edict. Even if I want her to come back, she can't come back. He's gotten his royal behind kicked by the Greek armies and there's no one there to comfort, to console him. He is a lonely man and it's only going to get worse. 
Let me tell you this, that's what a rebellious, unrepentant heart always produces. It always produces loneliness. Always produces loneliness. I think of some men that are in my life right now that I know have wandered away from Jesus. And they think they're having the time of their life. That they have made decisions finally once and for all, something that's good for me and I'm going to enjoy my life and I'm going to leave my wife and I'm going to leave my children and I'm going to pursue these things. Let me tell you, if you find yourself in a similar position today, whether it means you're walking away from a marriage, whether it's you're walking away from other relationships or, or most importantly, you're just walking away from your relationship with Jesus, you are going to be a lonely person one day. That's what happens when we are rebellious and unrepentant. It always produces loneliness in the end. It's too bad that Xerxes didn't learn what our big idea is here this morning, that respect can never be legislated, but it can always be earned. It can never be legislated, it can always be learned. As the curtain falls on this first act of the book of Esther, It would appear to the casual reader that God is anything but sovereign. It appears that he is absent, that he is oblivious to evil, to the evil that is rampant in the Persian culture. The truth is that he is very, very much there. And it's going to be incredible over the next couple weeks as we see that he will use two incredibly ordinary people to do something very, very extraordinary. As we jump into chapter 2 next week, let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you have chosen to record in Scripture the foolish lessons that a king never learned, the foolish mistakes that he made. God, I'm glad that 2,500 years later, we can study a life and We know we're all prone to lean in that direction, to make foolish decisions with our lives that have incredibly tough consequences one day. God, I thank you of the benefit of seeing exposed in the pages of Scripture a man's life who made foolish decisions so that we might not have to learn things the hard way, but that we might submit as Christ followers certainly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. I pray for the person this morning whose heart is not for God, who has never crossed that line of faith and placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. God, I pray today that they would understand that life without you is futile. It ultimately only leads to disaster and a heartache and ultimately eternal loneliness. God, I pray that we would learn these lessons. I pray that husbands would learn to be servant leaders. I pray that Wives would learn to allow their husbands to lead and flourish in the home and our roles that you've given to us to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. I pray this church will be marked with couples like that. I pray it'll be marked with men like we described this morning and women like we described this morning so that we can impact and influence this community for the cause of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.